The time is now. That's a little phrase that you might say sometimes. You certainly might hear that sometimes when, when it's time to take some action. Maybe you've been thinking about something for a while and it's finally like I, I, it's time to bite the bullet and to get this done. That's what one couple did when it came to their retirement. Their names are Richard and Angela Burke. And they love taking cruises. So they thought for their retirement, why don't they just permanently go on cruises? that that would be their retirement, that they would just go on a string of cruises, one after the next, after the next, after the next. They had done the math on it, and it was actually going to work out cheaper for them to constantly be on a cruise than it was to pay their mortgage and their insurance and their property tax and, and utilities and all of that. So they contemplated it for a while, and, and finally in May of 2021, so a little over a year ago, they said, the time is now. And they went into retirement on a steady string of cruises. They took a 51-day cruise to, to uh, where they go, Sydney. They went to Singapore. They've been to the Mexican Riviera. They've been to the Bahamas and much more over the course of this last year. That's what they decided to do. The time is now, and they bit the bullet, and they did it. They say they're going to sell their house, but right now, they said that three of their adult children and families are living in that house, which is the real reason why they have permanently gone on cruises, I'm sure, at this point. Now, I've never been on a cruise, but I know that uh, several of you have, and for the ones of you who have, anybody here interested in going permanently on a string of cruises? All right, I didn't think there'd be many takers, but I thought I should at least float the idea and, and see if anybody would be interested. All right. But for the Burks, for this couple, they say the time is now, and they've been cruising ever since. And apparently, I haven't been able to find an update, but I guess they're just continuing on with that plan. Well, now when it comes to our passage for today, the Apostle Paul, he has a message for us, and it's the same message. The message is the time is now. The time is now. Now, for a couple of chapters, Paul has been giving us some very practical and timely wisdom about what it looks like to live our lives in the church the way that God would intend and to live our lives beyond the church in the way that God would intend. And he's been bringing this truth to us and we've been seeing it over these last couple of chapters. He's been talking about the importance of making our lives a, a living sacrifice. That should resonate with you or at least be a reminder for you of what we were talking about. He talks about how we have spiritual gifts and that we should be engaging them in use of the body of Christ. It talks about how we should bless others and not persecute them, about how we should overcome evil with good. He's talked, just last week we saw, he was talking about how to live with and under authorities, specifically last week in relationship to the government and people in power. And, and in all of these words that Paul has been giving us, there's been kind of this underlying sense of urgency that we need to get on with it, that the time is now to make these things happen. And we've been seeing that. And today we're going to actually see a little bit more of what he's calling us to in terms of what the devotion of our life should look like. But he's also going to tell us a bit of why is there such an urgency? Why do we need to get on with this? Why is this something that we need to be intentional about taking on and pushing forward in our lives? We're going to take a look at that. In fact, you can go ahead and turn to the passage. It's Romans chapter 13. It's right at the end of Romans 13. You can grab your scripture journal 
and turn to that. There's an outline inside of your pathway notes. And as you're turning there, welcome to those who are listening in other places, whether that be the classic venue or the Moon Campus or online. It is good to be continuing on in our Roman series. We've got uh, not too many weeks left, actually. We're at the end of chapter 13 by the end of today. And then there's just 14, 15, and 16 to go. And uh, so we've, made, we've come a long, long ways and still some really dynamic stuff before we get ultimately to the end. Today we're in Romans 13, beginning beginning in verse 8. A passage like today's is vitally important because it challenges this temptation of acknowledging the truth but not doing the truth. And this is where many of us get stuck. Yeah, we understand a bit about what the truth is, but we have failed to really appropriate it or lived it out in our life. So do we know what we're called to do? Do we know that we should make our lives a living sacrifice before Christ? Yeah, we know that. But do we? Do we actually live that out? We know that we have been called to take the spiritual gift or gifts that God has given us and to to live those forward for the benefit of the body of Christ. Yes, we know that. We know that. But do we do that? We know that we should overcome evil with good and not be overcome by evil ourselves. We know that. But does that happen? We know we should live under authority and do so in a, in a right and honoring and respectful way. We know that, but do we actually do that? That's what Paul's got on his mind. And he's, he's trying to light a bit of a fire. He's saying the time is now, and he's going to tell us why is the time now. There are a few different things that we can learn as we make our way along in that. And a few I want to point out for you, there is that outline there. You can jot these down, put these down in your journal. Here's what he says to us. First of all, he says that the time is now to pay your love debt. Now, I understand that probably sounds a little bit odd to you. Maybe you've never heard it spoken of quite in that way. I don't think I've ever heard it spoken of in in that way. But I think you'll catch on here to what he's talking about. Paul begins this section with these words starting verse 8. If you look at it, he writes, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, before we get to the core of what that verse is saying, there's a little phrase right at the beginning that it's important that we would just take a moment to talk about because this is oftentimes misinterpreted. And it's this little phrase, you can see it there at the beginning, oh, no one anything. Some people have taken that to mean, well, Paul is teaching us that it's never okay to owe anyone anything, that it's never okay to have a loan of any sort, not for a car that you can't take out a mortgage, you can't get a loan to buy a tub of popcorn at the movies because you kind of need that, or to buy a pound of bacon in the grocery store. Have you noticed? It's pretty ridiculous. That's not what Paul is saying because it's always okay to buy bacon regardless of what the cost is. That's what Paul didn't actually write that, but that's what he means in this passage, right? Paul's not talking about the merits or the detriments of financial borrowing here. That's not what this is about. Remember, we need to keep everything in its context. And verse 8 comes right after verse 7, and verse 7 says, pay the tax that you owe. It says, pay the revenue that you owe. And so verse 8 is really just talking about verse 7. It's saying, in other words, pay your debts is what he's saying. Not saying it's wrong to have debts. That's not what this passage is about. Besides, there are other passages in the scriptures like Matthew 5 that talks about how how to be a good lender and why learn how to be a good lender if there's never an appropriate time for anybody to borrow. That's not what he is talking about here in this passage. Paul is using this this phrase as 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 
recap of what verse 7 has just said, as well as a little turn of phrase to try to just take him into this idea of this love debt that we have. This is what he wants us to understand. He says, don't owe any debt ongoing, pay your debts, except the debt of love. He says, there is the one exception. This is important to understand. He says we need to love one another. He says that's a debt. It is something that we owe. Now, he doesn't say loving other people is something that you owe because you failed to do it to this point, and so you still owe it. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that this is, we should be a debtor to love. In other words, that regardless of how much we have paid it in the past, paid the debt of love, that we should continue to pay it because we never get out of debt when it comes to our responsibility to show and to demonstrate love. It's a unique way that he's kind of formulating that and saying it, but, but that's what he's trying to communicate to us. So where does this debt of love come from? Well, it comes from what we've been given. It comes from what Christ has done for us. It goes back all the way to the beginning of chapter 12 where he says, in view of God's mercy, do these things. In view of the love of God, do these things. We're constantly in debt to God. And a lot of times, the way that we can pay that debt back is to pay that debt forward and to love other people and to express God's love, yes, back to him, but also in all of the context in which we live, whatever those might happen to be. And so that's what he's trying to get us to understand here. It's interesting that Paul says that the expression of love is actually a fulfillment of the law. He might say, well, hold on a second. I thought we were done with the law. I thought that that was finished. In fact, isn't that a lot of what Romans is about, is that the law is, is no more? Well, it in part has told us that, but not completely, if you've really been paying attention, as it comes to sort of the ritual nature of the law, the sacrificial nature of the law, and that, that you need to, to, according to the law, bring an animal and sacrifice it so that your sins might be passed over and those sorts of things. Yeah, that part has been done away with. Why? Because we have a better sacrifice in the person of Jesus. But when it comes to the moral nature of the law, when it comes to the things that God has as expectations for how his people would live, those aspects of the law continue. They'll never change. It's simply God's desire for how his people would live. So he goes on and he tells us a bit about that. In verse 9, he writes, For the commandments... You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul is saying that you are demonstrating love for others in the way that you treat them. So he's saying, according to these different parts of the commandments that he's just quoted, he says, you shall not commit adultery. Well, loving your spouse means that you're faithful to your spouse. That's an expression of love that you owe in that regard. Or he goes on also, he talks about you love others when you don't murder. But we need to be mindful of that because most of you haven't murdered anybody. Maybe all of you haven't. I don't know. But, um, you know, but uh, we need to be reminded of Jesus' clarification that he gives when he speaks about the importance of not murdering and that when we have hatred and ill will in our heart, that that is tantamount to murder, essentially. And so we need to understand that piece of it here. Do you love others by not 
having hatred in your heart toward them. You love others, he goes on, when you don't steal from them. Now, obviously, that's their goods, but also, what else can you steal? You can steal a person's reputation through gossip, through lying, through slander. He's saying you love others when you treat them kindly and compassionately in those regards. And the other one that he adds here, you love others when you don't covet the things that others have and you just can celebrate the good fortune that they have in their life. That there is a goodness that they have come to experience and we can just enter into that with them instead of wishing that I had it or even if you don't always wish that you had it, wishing that they didn't because it somehow feels like they're ahead of you in the game now because they have all... No, this is celebrating the goodness that has come for them. That's love. And Paul says this is a debt that we owe day after day after day after day. And there's never going to be a point when you get to the spot where you have paid in full that love debt. He says you'll always be in debt when it comes to love. So we need to learn to take on this attitude. He says the time is now to learn to live in love love and continue to pay that forward over and over and over again. It's an important mindset that we would have. In any circumstance you walk into, you can know this is an opportunity for me to pay my love debt. Even if this person isn't someone you even know or that you don't feel very loving toward and you might not even like them, quite likely there's a responsibility on your part there. And notice who we're to extend this love toward. It's not just family. It's not just spiritual family. He says it's our neighbor. You might say, all right, well, who's my neighbor? Is this just the person who lives next door or just around the corner in my neighborhood? All right, who's my neighbor? Well, that's a great question. It's actually the same question that Jesus' disciples asked him when he said you need to love your neighbor as yourself. And who's my neighbor? And so Jesus goes on to instruct them. And you may remember that Jesus went on to teach a parable. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, I'm not going to go through all of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Maybe Many of you know it. If you don't or if you'd like to refresh on that, Luke chapter 10, some extra credit reading for later on. But it talks about this man who provides for the need of another man who's in distress. And the cool part of the story or even the most important part of the story isn't that there's a guy who stopped to help when nobody else would. The good powerful part of the story is the fact that it was a Samaritan that stopped. Now, we've talked a lot through the book of Romans how the Jews and the Gentiles did not get along. They were fierce enemies, and now they're in church together, so that was interesting. But there's this other group of people. We call them the Samaritans, and the Jews probably had more hatred for the Samaritans than they even did for the Gentiles. Because this was a, a mixed-race group of people, that was part of it, in, in that some of them were Jews, and some of them were people who worshipped idols, just idolatrous worship going on, and those two groups intermarried, and they made this whole new race, and the Jews just despised them because they gave up their Judaism, but also because they married into an idolatrous people. And so they just, the, the animosity grew and grew and grew. And they did not want anything to do with one another, which is interesting because they were neighbors. Because you have, the, you have Judea where the Jews are living and then right to the north of them in modern day Israel, you have what would be Samaria, that group of people. Then to the north, you have 
Galilee. And so many of the Jews were moving back and forth. Jesus, much of his ministry was in Galilee. So there was often reason to travel through there, but they would not. They didn't want to set foot in Samaria at all because they, they hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans hated them. And it was an, an ugly picture all the way around. And so instead of going through, which would be a nice quick way to get from one place to another, they would go all the way out and around. It took them a whole lot longer. It cost them more. Um, everything was harder because of that, but that's what they did because they didn't want to have any encounters with them. It would kind of like being if, if you wanted to go to West Virginia. Now, I don't know why you'd want to go to West Virginia, but let's just say you do. And in fact, Morgantown is where you want to go. But everything to the south of where you're leaving, the rest of southwestern Pennsylvania below wherever you start, that's going to be our Samaria, if you will. You don't like these people at all. So you're not going to get on 376 down to 79 and go south and be in Morgantown in an hour and a half or, or less if you have your Waze app open, which I learned last weekend a lot of you do. But so you don't do that. Instead, what you do is you go to Altoona and then you go all the way down south to Cumberland, Maryland, and then you come back across the west until you get to Morgantown because you don't want anything to do with those people who, that's what's going on here. That's what they were doing because they despised them that much. And Jesus said, you know what? Those are your neighbors. Those are the people that I'm wanting you to reach out to. Those are the people that I want you to engage with. So my question is, who are the Samaritans in your life? Who are the people that, that when you see them or you know that you're, they're going to be there, that, that you avoid them? You see them down at the other end of the aisle at Giant Eagle, and so you don't go down that aisle anymore. You go somewhere else. The people that you would love to avoid, the people that you have difficulty getting along with, the people maybe with whom you already have some animosity in your heart, can be people who've arrived on that spot in your estimation for any of a number of reasons. Maybe it's got to do with their different background or religion or economic status or political party. Maybe it's got to do with race or it's got to do with lifestyle or it's got to do with worldview or it's got to do with sexual ethics or sexual orientation. I know that sometimes it can be hard enough to love the people who are like you, let alone the people who are very different from how you are. But understand that love means the most when it reaches those who are like you the least. Love means the most when it reaches those who are like you the least oftentimes. And it's easy to fool ourselves when it comes to evaluating the nature of our own love because we can always find something to justify where we are. We can find some corner where we've helped somebody out, where we've extended some love in some way. Maybe it's just to somebody who's very much in our circle. Maybe it's a part of our family, but, but we can justify our position of love. But really, the standard that we're being called to here isn't a standard of just looking to those who are closest to you, the ones you have a natural affinity to, but he's saying you need to look more broadly into your Samaritan circles as it goes into neighborhoods and to communities and to the county and even beyond. He says that's where you need to start to examine where you are. How are it's, it's, it's you know, not difficult to convince somebody of your love for God, but as you think about your love for the least of these, that sort of speaks for itself. 
And Paul is calling us to this standard of, of not just being kind and compassionate to those who we already like and maybe already love, but rather a group of people that, that you might hate, that you might have no time for whatsoever. And Paul says, now's the time to turn a corner on this. So can I just give you an action step? just something for this week that, that I would pray that you'd be willing to commit yourself to, and that is just to find a way to engage with somebody who might be on your Samaritan list. Maybe invite them for coffee or have a meal with them. Maybe meet some need for them or reach out to them in, in some other way. Maybe just make them some cookies and, and take them over. It can be big, it can be small, Actually, the specific thing isn't that important, but it's going to make a world of difference to them and it's going to make a world of difference to you for the fact that you've stepped outside of that comfort zone and that you're seeking to and carrying out this pattern to love your neighbor as yourself. Might we say to love your Samaritan like yourself. Paul says we got to get serious about living in this way. It's that important. You might say, all right, yeah, I get that. I understand that. But that person's never done anything for me, at least nothing positive. And so if I do that for them, it's going to kind of be like they're just taking advantage of me and I'm letting them take advantage of me. And I understand that kind of perspective, and I understand a bit of that mindset on why you wouldn't be inclined to take those sort of steps with that person. But if you really take that and you boil it down to what's really behind that, what's really behind that is pride. Because I'm afraid that somehow they're going to come out ahead. They're going to come out the winner. We're not in this to win. We're in this to advance the purposes and the cause and the love of Jesus. And in any case, whose estimation is most important to you anyway? And certainly as we demonstrate the love of Christ, as we love our neighbor as ourself, even if we keep loving and they keep rejecting, should mean something to us, the fact that in God's estimation, we're following through on his call. Paul says, the time's now. He said, you guys know this. It's time to get on with it. It's not the only thing he says. He also says that the time is now not just to pay your debt, but also to wake from sleep. To wake from sleep. I know a lot of people have trouble waking from sleep. Few of you, even right now, having trouble waking. No, no, I, everything looks good as far as I can tell. All right, people have trouble waking from sleep. And, and if that's you, it's good to know that there are a lot of new, new alarm clock apps that are out there, right? Most of us used to have like that clock radio on our beds. Probably very few of you still use that. Maybe a couple relics. I don't mean you're the relic. I mean the clock radio is the relic. There might be a few of those left, but most of you use your phone, right? For your alarm at home. And uh, the good thing is there's a lot of new apps that are coming out and a lot of new sounds you can wake up to. Um, but to help us to get out of bed, some of them that are coming out aren't all that pleasant. You know, that's not the little birds or sounds of nature that wake you up slowly. One I saw this week, <laughs> the alarm was nails on a chalkboard. Can you imagine waking up to that? 
Uh, that just makes you shiver to even think about it, doesn't it? Or there's another app. What is it called? Wake Me Up. It requires you to get up out of bed and take a certain number of steps with, with your phone before it'll turn off. That'll get you out of bed. There's another one called Alarmy, which, which forces you to do a math problem before it will turn off to get your mind kind of engaged, which is kind of a problem for those who have trouble doing math problems when you're fully awake, let alone when you're asleep. Well, those are all available for you. You might want to check some of those out. But obviously, it's a problem if you have trouble waking up from sleep. And Paul says, you know what? I've got that same thing on my mind. Look what he says here. Concern, uh, he, concerning this, he begins in verse 11. says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Now, Paul's concern is certainly about more than being able to get out of bed in the morning. The sleep that he is concerned about is our spiritual lethargy. That's what he's concerned about because he's looked around and he sees how a lot of people have just kind of remained indifferent. They've remained unmoved about the things that he's calling them to. He goes on for 11 chapters. Here's who God is. Here's what God's done. Praise God at the end of chapter 11 for what he has done. Chapter 12. Now, because of who God is, because of the mercies of God, because of all of what he has done, this is what we ought to be about. And Paul's looking around and he's like, what is going on? Why aren't you doing anything? Why aren't you engaging? Why aren't you making your life a living sacrifice? Why aren't you using the gifts that God has given to you to bless other people? Why aren't you overcoming evil with good? Why aren't you living under authority and bringing respect and honor where it is? Why aren't you doing any of these things that I'm going on and on to tell you about, Paul says. He says, what's up with that? He says, the time is now, friends, to get on with it. This is really, really important, he is saying to them and to us. They're spiritually asleep. And I would say that, may I humbly say that maybe this is true of us too? At least at times and in circles and, and maybe sometimes we do well and other times we don't do so well. Or maybe for us it's more kind of in the negative category. You might consider yourself to be more in the, in the positive category in that. But is there not a time when most all of us can, can press forward in ways that we haven't yet to this point? He goes on to tell us about the urgency of it all. Here's some of why it's so important to get on it. The end of verse 11. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. When he says salvation, he's not saying you coming to faith in Jesus is nearer than it used to be. It's not what he's saying. He's talking about the, the end of salvation. He's talking about Jesus' return. He's talking about the culmination of all of what salvation provides for us. He says that's nearer than it's ever been before. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Paul is saying that the end, either through Jesus' return or when we depart from this earth, either way, that it's closer than it's ever been before. And that only makes sense, the fact that that is True, And his concern isn't just that we would be ready. Paul's concern is also that we would do our part so that others in our sphere of influence, that they might be made ready as well. 
for some of us, we kind of have this idea, we can just kind of sit back because he hasn't come for a long time. He hasn't come for my entire life. And so, you know, maybe he's not going to come for a while. And uh, when, when I see some more signs, then I'll just get on it right away. But that's neglecting the fact that God has put us here for a purpose. And it's not just for you that you might be ready, but so that you might help other people to be ready. And you're not going to have that sort of opportunity if we just sort of keep putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And that's what Paul is drawing our attention to. The process begins by putting off behaviors that will detract from our witness and from our ministry. And he mentions some here in verse 13. He talks about orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality and sensuality and quarreling and jealousy. And that's not an exhaustive list. There are categories of things, but it goes beyond that. In fact, you could probably just come up in your own mind with the things that might be present in your life or come in and out of your life that you know or things that would cause somebody else to say, that, doesn't, that seems pretty hypocritical to me, or that would harm your life or your witness before other people. You can figure out what that's all about. So Paul says, wake up. He says, wake from your sleep. Wake from your spiritual lethargy. Wake from your slumber. Stop going through the motions. Get engaged already, he's saying, because when Jesus returns, we want to be caught living for him, right? Not embarrassed because of the weak nature of our faith and our our service and where we find ourselves. Imagine you did know the date that Jesus was going to return. As that date drew closer, do you think there'd be any things that you would do in your life, in your family, to sort of clean it up for the day when he gets here? And if the answer is yes, you see that obviously that you're identifying the fact that there are some things that that need to be tweaked, adjusted, whole-scale changed, and that now would be the time to do that. So Paul says the time is now because Jesus return is closer than it's ever been before and you want to be found ready and the only way to be fully ready for that day is to prepare ourselves in this day Paul says the time is now to wake from sleep and he adds also that the time is now to put on Christ as he wraps this up. This is Paul's expression of what we need to do when we wake up. We need to walk in the light, not in the darkness. And verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Putting on Christ certainly seems like a worthy endeavor, but it seems reasonable to ask, well, how do you do that? How do I put on Christ? It's a good question. And there are probably a lot of different things that we could say. Certainly, there are a lot of things we could say here. Let me just give you a few, just to kind of give us something to hold on to and maybe employ going forward. Actually, Paul gives us the first right here at the end of verse, or in verse 14. He says, and make no provision for the flesh. What he is saying is put off sin. Put off sin. Be done with it. See, sometimes we try to put on Christ. We get moved, we get motivated, maybe because of a a passage like this or a sermon like this, and I was like, yeah, I need to do that. And so I'm going to put on Christ, but we try to put on Christ over 
layers of sin and over layers of selfishness and over layers of self-interest and over layers of self-worship. And, and it's like, why, why is this not gaining any traction? Why am I not making any progress? I put on Christ, but did we really? Because we didn't put off the things that would separate us from the work of Christ really thriving because we're holding on to something else. And we're prioritizing that in life even as we're trying to pretend that we're putting on Christ. So what is there that you need to confess? What is there that you need to let go of and, and set aside so that you might be able to fully live in the fullness of Christ? That's one thing. Another step to putting on Christ is to appropriate his attributes into our own lives. You see, there are attributes of God that we have, that we can carry out, that we can demonstrate. We can't do them as perfectly as he does, but we can still take them on. In theology, we call those communicable attributes of God. They're the ones that we also have. So we can't do everything that Jesus can do, but we can love which is an attribute of Christ. We can live in humility and demonstrate that. That was definitely an attribute of Christ. We can show mercy to other people. We can serve others. These are all things, these are all attributes of Jesus. And if we want to put on Christ, then we take on and we do the things that he would do. Remember WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? Absolutely. That's like a perfect question to ask in, in this regard. What would Christ do? If I'm putting on Christ, I'm always asking myself the question in whatever context I walk into, what would Jesus do here? How would Jesus respond to this circumstance? What word would Jesus have to say here? What humility might he show? What love might he pour out? That's part of what it means to put on Christ. We put off sin we take on his attributes. And just one more that I would mention is baptism. Baptism is identifying with Christ and indicating that you belong to him or that you have put him on. That's what it's about. Baptism is not necessary for salvation, but it is necessary to demonstrate where your allegiance lies. And if that's a step you've yet to take, I would encourage you to do so as a means of putting on Christ of saying that I am clothed in him, not just I want him for aspects, I want him for this or I want him for that, because there are pieces that we definitely are committed to Christ for, like, like salvation, for resting and finding our eternity secure. Absolutely, but sometimes then we forget or we aren't so interested in giving the rest of our life and making our life a living sacrifice when it comes to living it out day to day. Yeah, I want the insurance policy, but I'm not so committed as to actually live day to day. Paul says, now is the time to take that next step. So how would we do that? Well, you might be tempted to just say, well, the important thing is, and I feel this in this moment, and I'm going to do this, I'm going to get serious from now forward, putting a stake in the ground, and from now on, I'm going to get serious. And that's awesome. And I'm glad for that, and that's really important. But I'm afraid if that's all that you're going to do is make that determination, that it's probably not going to go so well. I mean, it's probably not going to last. 
Is it because I don't believe that you're sincere? No, I believe you're sincere. Is it because you don't think that I'll follow through? No, I think you're going to try to follow through. The problem is that we also encounter issues and problems and hurdles and struggles and, and things that come against us. They catch us off guard. And they put us in a position where now I'm struggling. And because my commitment was only at the level of I've decided in my mind that this is what I'm going to do, that's something very easy to beat up and to lose track of and to lose sight of and lose the commitment of. What we need are others who can support us and encourage us and help us help to pick us up and to stand us up and to prop us up and move us forward and, and encourage us and strengthen us and sometimes hold us accountable and help us stay on that path that we were on. This is the life that we have been invited into in Christ. It doesn't mean that you're weak because you weren't able to maintain that. It's because you didn't put yourself in the place where you could fully be successful at it. So how do you do that? You connect. You engage. Beyond, as much as I wish that just coming here on the weekend was enough to get it done, it's not. We need to go deeper. Great place for that is a group, small group, connected to other people where you can get known and where they can know you and where you can do this mutual encouragement and support or to get involved in serving. That's another awesome way to do this because you're getting connected to people who have a similar heart and a similar mindset to work, to use gifts for the sake of others. It's a great way to get that deeper level connection. In fact, right now is a perfect time to do that because we're coming into the fall and there are always extra needs that exist in the fall. Point is that if you're truly serious about making progress and thriving in your spiritual walk, the time is now to engage. The time is now. I just want that almost as a mantra to run through your mind. The time is now to let that just be a message that just resonates with you this day and in the week to come. The time is now. The time is now. The time is now. What are you going to do with that? Are you going to respond now? It's not enough to say, yes, this is so important. It's vital that I would make my life a living sacrifice, and that's something that I'm going to do soon. Paul says the time is now because he's seen too many people who have sincerity of heart, but it just doesn't happen. And I've seen that too. Friends, I've experienced that. We all walk through that. We need others to stand around us and to support us. The time to make this decision is not next week. It's not once we get past Labor Day. It's not when you hit some other milestone. It's not the first of the year. It's not when the pieces of certain puzzles line up. It's not when you've got more time because it's just so busy at work right now. It's none of those things. The time is now. The only question is, will you? Will you make the commitment first of heart 
followed by the commitment of our feet that move us into what is necessary to make it a reality. Friend, the time is now. Heavenly Father, I believe that everybody here is interested. Everybody listening at home or in a venue or on a campus is interested. That's why we're here. But like Paul has identified in the church in Rome, not everyone who has interest follows through. So Father, I pray that this would not be just something to make our lives a living sacrifice. Yeah, that's, that's so good, that's so important. And I'll get to it, that we would no longer be putting it off because if we were honest, some of us have been putting it off for years. The time is now. Father, I pray that we would be serious to engage, to do what's necessary, to get connected, to take the steps so that no longer do we need to look back and say, yeah, I missed that opportunity. I didn't take that opportunity. But the Paul said the time is now, and I responded. Friend, if there's anything that I can do to assist you in that, that's why we're here. We would love to help. We would love to help you walk forward in what this looks like, what this means for you. I'd love a conversation with you about that, or any of our staff would love to do that. Or after the service, there will be people who would love to pray with you, and you can engage with them as well. Lord, thank you for the call. Thank you for Paul's bold words. I just pray that we would respond with all of our lives for all of your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are holy, that there is no one like you, that we're going to put our trust, our faith, our hope in you and in you alone. Father, move in our hearts. We know what you're calling us to do. Give us the courage to respond, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.